This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. This morning, we're going to talk with Colin Haffey. I'm going to allow Colin to introduce himself in just a few minutes, but we're going to be talking about community collaborative efforts around the northern part of the state. So not just Taos, but also places like Santa Fe and elsewhere, where communities are working together to to adapt to landscape scale fire situations that are becoming increasingly likely as the climate crisis takes hold across the Southwest. So I'd like to introduce to you Colin Haffey. We have him on the phone. Are you there, Colin? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks, Jim. All right, Colin, why don't you just jump right in and uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, so um, I'm the conservation manager for the Nature Conservancy in New Mexico. I work mostly with the Rio Grande Water Fund, which is a public-private partnership with the goal of treating um, 20,000 acres a year of our dry conifer forest over the next 30 years in the upper Rio Grande Basin with the intent of reducing the risk of catastrophic wildfire. My background is in fire ecology and forest ecology in the Southwest. A lot of, you know, I spent a lot of time in northern New Mexico and so pretty familiar with the, the forest and then what happened, you know, after some of these fires like Los Conchas and Cerro Grande and, you know, the Hondo or Lama fire up in your neck of the woods. And um, we're working really hard with the Nature Conservancy and other groups to um, try to prevent some of these massive fires and especially the floods that come after. Okay, in, in a few minutes, I'd like to kind of dive into some of the, the actual ecology of the trees and the forests and how they react to the drying and the, the warming that we're seeing. But why don't you set, uh, if you can, kind of the larger stage for us about how do we think that the climate crisis is going to impact northern New Mexico? And what are we looking at as far as how ecosystems are changing and how they will continue to change as the climate shifts? Yeah, I think to understand that question, you have to go back in time a little bit and start talking about what was fire's natural role in the forest in, in New Mexico. And from studying the annual growth rings and the, the trees on the mountains and learning from the trees, we're actually able to learn that fires used to burn through this area really frequently. You know, depending on exactly where you're standing in the mountains, you could be anywhere from a fire every five years to something like every 30 years. And what those fires would do is really come in and clear the underbrush, clear some of those that small vegetation, you know, remove some of the, the smaller trees and really create a more open stand with more grass, more sunlight hitting the forest floor. And around the turn of the century, you know, and especially after kind of going into the post-World War II, we started to put these fires out. You know, the view, especially from, you know, like Washington, D.C., where these, you know, where our federal land managers are headquartered, we start to see forests as a resource and only value them for their timber. And fire is a threat to that resource. So we started putting the fires out. And what that does is it allows for all of that undergrowth, all of those shrubs and the smaller trees to grow up. And 
over the course of, you know, 60 to 100 years, you start to see these this vegetation just completely take over this the forest and no light is getting down to the forest floor. All of the snow is being captured in the trees and then blowing off into, you know, into Oklahoma and other places like this, right? So you have forest that's essentially too dense with trees. And then when you get a fire, either from a, you know, a natural ignition like a lightning strike or an accidental ignition like a um, abandoned campfire or somebody's, you know, a spark from a, a flattened tire, the fire that burns through there then is able to start on the ground and move up through the, the canopies of the trees and these small trees. So it starts in the grass, then moves up into, you know, a, a medium-sized tree and then up into these large trees. And then it starts to, to run in what we call a crown fire, where it's moving in the, from crown to crown in each of the trees. And this is what, you know, we've seen in Los Conches and in the, the Hondo fire and then Zabato fire, where it leaves these big patches of treeless areas that are then kind of coming back as shrubland. And because of this over-densification, there's essentially too many trees in the forest for it to be, you know, a natural system, those trees are competing for resources, including water. And so when we look into the future and we say, well, what is, it, what is the, this place going to look like in 20, 30, 50 years, we know that it's going to be a hotter place. And we know that hotter in the Southwest means drier. And so all of these trees are going to be competing for a, a more scarce resource in water. And that makes them more susceptible to drought, which makes them more susceptible to beetle and, and pest outbreaks that can kill the trees. And it makes them more susceptible to this kind of crown fire that leaves behind big patches of treeless areas. We're trying to do one of the goals of the, of the conservation work and the restoration work that we try to do is to reintroduce fire as that keystone process into our forest. And we try to do that in a way that is, you know, under more mild conditions so that you're not getting these enormously hot fires. And we think that by reintroducing that keystone process, similar to, um, you know, reintroducing any sort of keystone predator or any sort of um, like a, you know, a coral reef kind of system, we believe that that is something that's going to allow for those systems to naturally kind of adapt and evolve through time as the climate warms in a more gradual way rather than in these abrupt, you know, overnight, you know, over the course of a week transitions from forest to non-forest. One thing I want to hi highlight out of what you're saying that I, that I really, that really stands out for me is, well, two things. One, that our forest ecosystem in, in the Southwest has evolved in conjunction with fire. So it is a fire-dependent system. Is, is that fair to say this is a fire-dependent system that, that requires uh, fire to be, to be part of it, to, to, to break the seeds open, to, um, to feed the soil in the forest? It, these two things are, the, the forest and the fire are completely linked. That's totally right. The forest and the fire are completely linked. The systems 
the ecological systems, especially, you know, I think we should be really um, specific about the type of forest that we're talking about. Fire plays a role in all forests, but it, but it varies across the different forest types. So what we're talking about now, um, Jim, what you're, what you're referencing is really that ponderosa pine to what we call the, the dry mixed conifer. Right. So these are things, you know, that start around 7,000 feet. So, you know, just right in Taos and then move up the mountains into, you know, maybe 9,000, maybe 9,500 feet. So depending on, you know, aspect and things like that. So I got to put in a little bit of the, the science caveat there and the it depends answer, which is always a bit annoying for everybody. But um, what we... Uh, what we try to do, so you're totally right that fire in those systems and the forest are completely linked. I mean, we don't have enough moisture to break down nutrients in the, you know, in the leaves and the needles in the, in the branches. Those things kind of stick around and don't rot very fast, especially compared to, you know, places further north or um, in the south, in the southeast. So we need fire to be the recycler of those nutrients and get them out of, you know, they're bound up in these branches and needles and unusable to other plants and animals or organisms. And so we need to have the fire kind of liberate those organ those nutrients and put that back into the soil. So that's, that's one thing. I think that fire also kind of helped control and, you know, set up this situation where we had a less dense forest with more diversity in the plant species that are growing on the forest floor. So you would have grasses and different flowers, different shrub species, and all of those are going to respond differently to our variability in climate. So dry years, you're going to get a, a species you know, composition that comes back with the species that are really responsive to, to dry conditions. Those things are going to flourish that year. Then in a wet year, you're going to get the wet species that come in. There's going to be this fluctuation that's responding to the, the moisture availability. Um, a couple of cool things on the actual adaptation of the, the species ponderosa pine is that it has bark. You know, anybody who's cut wood knows that the ponderosa pine bark is two, three, four inches sometimes. So that right. bark is thick in a way that it can withstand a low, you know, a kind of mild surface fire. And it's actually got those plates on it, and those plates are evolved so that they can kind of pop off with fire. And as they pop off, they're taking heat away. And um, so they're, they're putting that heat away from, from the trunk. And, the you know, anybody who's seen a big, you know, yellow belly Ponderosa pine knows that the, the branches, you know, are often really high up. And that's because the, the tree is intentionally dropping those lower branches so that fire coming through isn't going to catch one of those lower branches and then grow up or, you know, burn up to the top of the tree. And then the third really cool thing is that fire actually, or the, if you look at the needles of the tree, they're actually bundled at the bottom and that bundle is called a fascicle and so the point of that is just to protect the the growing 
part of the needle. So the, the piece where the cells divide and grow the needle is down in the bottom of that bundle. And on ponderosa pine, it's actually kind of set deeper than in other pines. And what, you know, we think is that that's producing um, a protective effect so that even if a needle gets scorched by some heat from the fire on the, on the surface, that little cellular bundle that's dividing and making new needles doesn't die. And if you go out and look at walk around in an area that's been prescribed burned, you know, a couple weeks later, you can actually see the um, the needle growing back out, and it'll have kind of this half brown where it got scorched, and then this other part of green where it's coming back new. So this ponderosa pine that we have all over the place here, that's our predominant forest type up in in the north at the higher elevations, is incredibly well adapted to these this this fire situation that um, a, a certain type of fire regime that we had historically. That's right. Yeah, That's totally right. The other thing you said a few minutes ago that I wanted to to go back to was you 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 said that as the forests burn here in New Mexico, we're seeing that the that the forests are not necessarily coming back; they're instead being replaced by scrubland. And I'd like to dive into that quite a bit because I think that's one thing that we're we're missing uh, in a lot of our discussion about um, forest fire is what comes after. As the climate shifts, we're not getting our typical forests coming back after a burn because the, the nature of the burn is different and then the climate situation is different. So we're getting, as you described it, scrubland. What are you talking about? Yeah, so this is something that we've observed really from South Dakota through Colorado into New Mexico and then over to Arizona, where after these massive fires, so, you know, think about the Los Conchas Hyde Park fire in Colorado, Rodeo Chetiscai, fires that are burning 153, 500,000 acres are leaving behind these really large patches of what we call high-severity fire. And high-severity fire just means that if you took a picture of the forest beforehand, it would be this big, really thick, lush, green forest. And then if you came back right after the fire and looked at it, it would essentially just be black trunks standing vertically. And then on the ground, all you would see is black ash. And so... When those patches are, you know, significantly big, um, and generally we're thinking like, you know, a couple thousand to tens of thousands of acres, the ponderosa pine that remains, especially around the outside, isn't able to seed in that area. The ponderosa pine seed is really kind of caught in this um, in this middle ground that makes it really incapable of putting seed far out into those patches. And so it, it has a little bit of a wing on it and the seed itself is large. So it makes it really heavy. So it doesn't, it doesn't carry in the wind very far, but at the same time, it's not, the seed isn't big enough to necessarily be attractive to, um, like jays or squirrels or things like that, that might otherwise want to cache a seed far out into the middle of some of these severely burned 
treeless area. So the seeds from so the ponderosas we, that remain cannot get back into the, the interior of the area that burned. That's exactly right. And ponderosa pine, unlike some of the, the species in, in the north, in the northern Rockies, like Montana, you know, up way up into Canada, um, they're called what? They're called serotonous. Their cones actually have a coating of thick sap or pitch on them. And those seeds are actually trapped in that cone until there's a big fire. And so the seed, you know, the seed will fall out of the cone only when it's exposed to heat. So those are way more, you know, those trees are way more adapted to the type of high severity fire that we've seen in some of our, you know, big fires. And ponderosa pine is not like that at all. Any kind of fire will really burn up the the seed and then it doesn't last very long in the soil itself. There's a lot of, you know, smaller critters like mice and ants and things like that that really go after the, the ponderosa pine seed once it hits the ground. So there's not really a seed bank that's left after some of these big fires. So especially in these in these high severity patches. And so what we've seen is that that um, that distance, the maximum distance, is right about 300 feet. So 300 feet or greater, and your likelihood of seeing any kind of pine regeneration goes way down. And we have some patches in, you know, say Las Conchas and, and Cerro Grande that are half a mile, three quarters of a mile across and 30,000 acres big. So there's no way that seed from the edge of those patches is ever going to make it into the middle of those landscapes. That's not to say that these are still these like denuded moonscaped areas actually coming back with this um, really kind of vibrant mix of grass and shrub. You know, anybody that's looked up towards Cuesta in the fall has seen those, those oak turn colors, you know, and, and seen the variety of the aspen in the drainages and the oak on the slopes and then some of the grassland on the, the flat country. So we do have a very diverse mix of species, and it's a very, you know, rich in cover and rich in pollinators and, and all this other stuff. It's just not forest. And the two big questions that we have kind of looking forward is how will this new system burn in the future, and is there a way that we can do any kind of reforestation to help break up those patches because what we don't want to do is, or at least what I think we don't want to do, is have a system transform across the entire mountain range from this overly dense forest to an overly dense shrub field. I think to our best bet for any sort of climate adaptation is to start to set up a, a mosaic or a mix of different species types. And Colin, before we jump back into forests and fire, you have your own podcast with some lady that you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jim. Um, yeah, we just wrapped up our first season. The podcast is called Hot and Dry. It's co-hosted with Callie Carswell, who 
is a freelance journalist who's and former editor with High Country News, and she's written for publications like Nature and Science and just a super smart woman who knows everything about climate and energy in New Mexico. And we did our first season on a, you know, on the transition of government into, you know, from Susana Martinez into the Michelle Lujan Grisham administration, and then the kind of the legislation that came out of this session, including the Energy Transition Act and the Water Data Act. Um, We had great interviews from folks from Mexico Conservation Voters, uh, the Sierra Club, Laura Paskus was on, many of you may know her from her environmental writing. Um, and so it was just, it was really great. It's on iTunes, it's also on SoundCloud. Um, it goes kind of in-depth on some of the policy that is affecting us now. So we'll, we'll see what we do for season two. We're still in, um, in discussion. Yeah, I think it's a great podcast. So uh, everybody check it out. It's called Hot and Dry. Let's dive back into the forest. So, so we were talking about the implications for this change from ponderosa pine forest to more of a scrubland uh, or woodland type of ecosystem after these giant forest fires. And what are the consequences of that? First, I think not having a forest is is top of mind for me. And I think that in, in some ways it, it can be pretty devastating from a, you know, take the scientist hat off and just put the human being hat on. And it's like, it's sad to go out there and not see a forest and not be able to interact with nature. Yeah, so I think kind of moving on from that, like, you know, the, the sort of spiritual and um, sort of just human and social connections that we have with forests, we also have these, these really important consequences in that when you look up at a forest, the forests are sequestering much more carbon than the, the scrublands and grasslands on, on a per acre basis. And I mean, that just makes sense, right? I mean, a, a big ponderosa pine log, much heavier than a oak stem. And that ponderosa pine log is just full of carbon. And so when we think about it from a climate change perspective, a lot of these big fires are having, you know, just a feedback loop where the more fires you have, the less carbon you're able to sequester, the hotter the, the hotter the planet gets, the more fires you have, right? So it just kind of keeps going like that. Big old feedback The other thing loop. that I think, yeah. So the other thing that I think is really important is, the, the water, and this is something that's a little less well-known, but I think we can think about it in um, sort of this spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, you have a forest that's just too dense, and the, the snow especially isn't able to make it down to the forest floor, and it ends up getting stuck in the canopy and then the sun comes out and it warms it up and that snow actually just evaporates and goes back into the atmosphere without ever draining down into the soil. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you have this open, this open scrubland and grassland and the same thing happens. It hits the ground, but in, but instead of, you know, melting slowly and, and going down into the, into the, aquifers and into our water tables, 
it just evaporates and goes back up into the the atmosphere and then and then travels on. What we want to do is try to find somewhere in that middle ground where we have a forest that is um, more open that allows the snow to hit the forest floor, but is but is closed enough that we actually get this shading effect so that instead of the sun heating up the forest or heating up the snow and melting that snow into the atmosphere, we actually just kind of allow it to gradually warm up and melt down into the aquifer, into the ground, you know, and then eventually into the streams and rivers. And so I think that, you know, combined with the carbon and the water, I think they were seeing two pretty significant long-term impacts to um, New Mexico kind of watersheds and forests. And and so does so are you or is the thinking among forest ecologists that our grandkids at least uh, will not have the same sort of forested New Mexico landscape that we see now that my kids are growing up in? I think that's the view. Of, I think that's the view of some forest ecologists. You know, I think there's been some really some really important papers and, and research articles that have come out in the last few years that have indicated that um, certainly the the trends that we're on, you know, anybody who's just sitting at home and kind of connecting the dots knows about the risk. Um, I, for one, tend to take a little bit more of an optimistic view, and I think um, that's good. I Give us think some that optimism. There are things that we can we can do. You know, we can we can intervene um, and do some of the forest thinning that opens up. The, the forest a little bit reintroduces the fire in those burned areas and or in those um those you know already forested areas and then I think in the burned areas we can do some reforestation work we can do some stream work to control erosion to slow um, the sediment and the soil movement and there there are a few things so you know to directly answer your question um, no, I don't think that the forests are going to look the same as they do right now or as the ones that we grew up with. But at some level, I don't know that that's exactly what we want because what we've right. learned is that the forests that we grew up with are actually not sustainable. And so they're going to change one way or the other. It's just a matter of how they change is up to us. And, you know, we're behind the the curve a little bit, so we've got some catch-up to do, but I think we've been able to, to really make some progress in the last, you know, five, ten years. So let's talk about that progress. We, uh, you're involved with a number of community collaborations. Um, Taos Land Trust is involved in some of these. We've got the Rio Fernando Collaborative, for one, that we, we've talked about several times on the show, and we could talk about a little bit more. Um, you're also involved with the All Hands, All Lands uh, project I want you to, to get into. And then there's the work of the Forest Guild. There's um, the Water Fund, which uh, is five years old. Colin, let's talk about these collaborative efforts. Yeah, sure. So I think let's kind of start at the biggest and, and you know, in geographic scope, and then we'll, we'll narrow down. So the, the Rio Grande Water Fund covers essentially 7 million acres of the upper Rio Grande from just south of Albuquerque 
all the way up to, you know, into Colorado. And we work with a diverse public and private partnership to um, create opportunities for forest and watershed health restoration work. And, you know, again, our goal is to treat, so to thin and, and reintroduce fire across 20,000 acres a year for 30 years. So this is a really ambitious, big, long-term partner or um, project. And we've been able to do that with, you know, by cultivating um, partnerships all the way from, you know, Albuquerque, you know, to Taos, Colorado, the Jemez. And we have, you know, 80 different signatories now. Um, we're shooting for 100 by 2020. But these signatories are all groups who have, you know, bought into this idea and recognized the need for forest restoration. And many of them are, you know, 100 miles away or more from the, the source of the water in the forest. But they recognize that the forests are... Our, our water tanks and that healthy forest means clean water and that clean water traveling downstream, you know, through Albuquerque is the backbone of our economy. And so we've been able to secure funding through um, private philanthropy dollars, through governmental organizations, through water utilities, um, agricultural districts, and then we apply that money through restoration treatments in the uplands. And I think one of the things that we're really proud of is because of all these partnerships that we've developed, we've been able to leverage every dollar of private investment 10 to 1 with public investment. So I think that that shows that we have a huge buy-in and a really strong buy-in from our um, public agency partners. And that's just really exciting. That's something that actually says, wow, this thing can be sustainable for the next 15 years. Like Jim said, we're five years old this year, and it feels like we've done a lot in those five years, but we still have a long way to go. So you say this covers, um, this covers I think you said, 7 million acres. Is yeah. That, is that right? So how many acres are you, are you actually doing restoration work on within that landscape? So out of that 7 million acres, we've identified about – um, 1.4 million acres that are in this category of, of ponderosa pine or dry mix conifers. So these areas where fires would have burnt, burnt historically pretty frequently. And out of that, you know, working with um, scientists and other researchers, we've kind of come to this number of about 40%. So only about 40% of the forests need to actually be restored through some sort of mechanical or prescribed fire treatment for the entire, you know, for the rest of the, the watershed to be kind of considered healthy. So that gets us to a number of 600,000 acres. That's how we got to that number. And then you divide 600,000 by, by 30 years and you get the, the 20,000 acres a year. Tell us about some of these projects. Like one of, one of the things that I think is really interesting is the is the Santa Fe Municipal Watershed. Is that part of yeah, this? Yeah, so it's actually I think that the Santa Fe Municipal Watershed is is a bit of a, a precursor to the Rio Grande Water Fund, uh -huh. and the Santa Fe Municipal Watershed 
actually came out of the observations following Cerro Grande. And Cerro Grande was, you know, a 43,000 acre fire where people, you know, were really kind of hit hard by the post-fire flooding. And folks across the, you know, across the Rio Grande were looking over and watching that from Santa Fe and said, well, geez, here we are sitting, you know, our municipal watershed, 40% of our water, our cheapest and cleanest water all comes from the forest and it's thick and at risk of a fire just like Cerro Grande. So a group of people started to get together, including the Nature Conservancy, to um, promote forest restoration and forest health. And, you know, through a series of conversations and, and collaboration with Forest Service, community members, city, county, government, um, they put a, uh, and I don't know the exact mechanism, but it, there's essentially a fee um, that is generated through, the, you know, like a publicly generated fee that goes into, from the city, into forest restoration. And so that pays for some of the forest restoration. And over the course of 15, 20 years almost, that thing has um, really resulted in a watershed that looks dramatically different than the surrounding areas that have had little restoration work, little prescribed fire work. And it's very resilient to fire. It's very resistant to this kind of high severity, high intensity fire. And it's, we think it's resilient to climate change. What kind of landscape are you looking for, or forest system are you looking for when you describe it as, as resilient? Yeah, I think you're looking for a landscape that has a patchy look to it, where there's some areas that have dense forests, some that have more sparse open forests. Uh, there's, a, there's a variety of different age classes in the forest so that you're not all just you know, older trees and you're not all just younger trees. There's a mix of, of open grassy spots, some shrubs, some spots that have a lot of shrub cover in them. And those things all create a, an opportunity for, as the climate warms, for the system to naturally move, like those naturally move around, naturally shift around and um, kind of adapt as it, as it needs to uh, based on the conditions. And then from a fire standpoint, really that the connectivity of the forest is what allows for fire to move through the canopies and through the crowns from the bottom of the watershed all the way to the top of the mountain. And then there's nothing to slow the erosion, nothing to slow the water movement down the hill during the monsoonal rain. And so from a fire standpoint, we can really confidently say, that we've reduced the risk in the Santa Fe watershed. And from a climate from a climate change standpoint, you know, there's so much uncertainty, but I think that we've definitely increased the resiliency in the Santa Fe watershed relative to a place that hasn't had that kind of restoration. So a resilient forest then, a resilient ponderosa pine ecosystem, as you guys see it, is one that can return to that traditional or let's say historic um, fire regime of these low burning, more frequent fires, but it allows the, the forest to change and shift over time 
while not just becoming one one giant mass of trees. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's exactly right. Is there a, a, a project up closer to Taos that you want to talk about? Yeah, I think there's a couple emerging projects up closer to Taos. I think um, the, the two I want to talk about, and I'll try to be quick, is um, one is the All Hands, All Lands burn team, which is an experiment that's a, it's a joint experiment between the Rio Grande Water Fund, the Forest Stewards Guild, and the Nature Conservancy. And the goal of it is to coordinate across multiple agencies so that we can burn with those agencies, with different organizations, and um, in a cooperative way so that we don't need to worry so much about jurisdiction. I think we've learned that lesson a long time ago, that fire doesn't care about boundaries and fence lines, but funding does. And so in order to get projects implemented, you need to have the right money match up with the right property boundaries. And this all hands, all lands team works, you know, as a first step to trying to dissolve those so that when the opportunity comes up, when the weather conditions are right, when it's safe to do so, we have a crew of people who can go out and implement a prescribed burn, lead a, pers- lead a controlled burn, or assist with a controlled burn. And I think one of the reasons, one of the need, one of the reasons we identified as a need for this project was, you know, our fire seasons across the, the Western U.S. and North America, they shift um, according to, to season, right? Any other year, but this year, this is kind of our typical fire season in June. But come August, September, October, all of our firefighters are off in California, you know, Montana, the Pacific Northwest, fighting other fires. And, you know, from a fire ecologist standpoint, I'm looking around saying, well, this would be a perfect time to burn, but there aren't any resources here to be able to do that safely. So this all hands, all lands crew combines the people who have the training, have the skills, as well as, you know, engaging with youth and and other folks early in their career to give them kind of some of that fire training and put fire on the ground in the right place at the right time in a safe way that allows um, for that process to kind of do its thing and, and shape the, the forest and the ecosystem. This year is crazy because we've got so much water. This is, you know, as we've talked about, it's, um, this is kind of how it used to be. We can't really rely on having years like this um, over the next few years as the, as the, it seems like the fire season just expands. I mean, we've seen that, especially in places like California, where the fire season lasts all year now. Um, we may be looking at a much expanded fire season in New Mexico. So would these crews and this all-hands-all-lands group be able to, to deal with that kind of expanded fire season? That's exactly right. I think we, you know, when you talk to fire managers, and, and especially folks who've been doing this for a long time, they don't even say fire season anymore. They right. just say fire year. Fire year. I mean, you can have fires any, you know, across the country, you can have a fire any day of the year. And um, I think that the all hands, all lands crew 
is really working to engage 365 days a year. Okay. So that whether that's doing something in the during the dry season to actually help, you know, suppress some of these fires that we don't want, um, or working on in the in the winter time to to thin out some of these, you know, do some of the cutting or, or burn piles or, you know, and then in the shoulder seasons when the, when the timing is right to do these controlled burns. And I think that that's kind of, this is another first step, but the, the ultimate goal, the long-term goal is to develop a restoration economy that allows for local folks to have jobs working in the woods 365 days a year, you know, with, you know, with breaks and and weekends and all that, but, (laughs) um, but, but not do this punctuated thing where they're on seasonally for a, for a few months and then they're cut loose to find something else to do. And I think that that's all part of it. And I, we've seen some really promising results in terms of the economics from this restoration work where for every million dollars that's invested in this type of, of restoration, 2.3 to 3.2 million um, is bounces around in the local economy. And so right. essentially that dollar hits two or three times before it leaves the, the local economy into the regional economy. And again, for every million dollars invested we're looking at supporting between 30 and 40 jobs. And so I think those are, those are pretty big and, and serious numbers when you look at, you know, rural communities in New Mexico and across the West. Yeah, it's huge. The restoration economy is, um, is, is something that can have a, a, a massive impact on, on jobs in, in this rural area. We see at the Taos Land Trust right now, we have um, about 28 full and part-time people employed, um, including 18 young folks who are learning the restoration economy. They're, they're doing invasive weeds. They're doing watershed restoration at Rio Fernando Park. So, so the, the restoration economy can, can have a significant impact on our, our communities. What, what other collaborations? So we've talked about the big one, which is the Rio Grande Water Fund. And there's, the, there's, there's these more localized efforts. One of them is the Rio Fernando Collaborative, which both the Taos Land Trust and the Nature Conservancy are part of. Do you want to just give that a plug? Yeah, sure. So I think, so the, so the goal of the Rio Fernando Collaborative is to revitalize the, the Rio Fernando. And I think the thing that I, is different about the, the Rio Fernando de Taos Collaborative than any of the other ones that I work with is that it takes a very holistic view. So we realized that, you know, early on, if we want water to feed acequias and flow through, you know, the land trust property and flow through town, we need to secure the headwaters. And so we've been working from the, the top of the mountain to do forest restoration, complete some great restoration work in the wetlands, working downstream along the actual channel to improve water quality, working with Asequia Association to improve, you know, the infrastructure, improve outreach, improve communication so that newcomers coming to town know that um, they're on an Asequia and know what that means. And then we really 
been doing a lot of work in you know in town to have the river be accessible and really see people kind of communing with and engaging with the river and you know this partnership is probably too long to name but i think some of the really important players are the Taos Land Trust Amigos Bravos the Taos Valley Safety Association the town of Taos the US Forest Service and i'm probably missing a few others Jim maybe you can help me out but i think that that collaborative group is one that that's very broad in ideas and that holistic approach is something that we're trying to emulate with the Rio Grande Water Fund. Absolutely. I've been speaking with Colin Haffey from the Nature Conservancy. Um, Colin, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, hey, my pleasure. Thanks, Jim. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM in Taos, New Mexico, edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.taoslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.